Exactly a year ago, the CEO of Signiant, Margaret Craig, sent me a document called the Signiant SaaS Manifesto. That SaaS as in software as a service, not a declaration that Signiant was getting sassy. In her accompanying note, Margaret explained, this isn't a marketing asset. There's no agenda beyond information sharing and a conviction that connecting the dots between technology and business considerations is essential to the future of the media tech sector. She also said she had just shared the paper with a few people because she thought the document might be too long, too dense and controversial for general consumption. The feedback I gave her, which I'm sure was the same as everybody else's, was that actually it was a riveting and important read and should be required reading for everyone. A year on, and Margaret has indeed decided to make her thoughts freely available for anyone to read. And I'm really delighted that she's chosen to do this to coincide with our annual leaders briefing, the moment in the year when the DPP really focuses on the business intelligence we all need to be successful in the next phase of our turbulent industry. Margaret has also very kindly agreed to join the DPP podcast to talk to me about why she wrote this fascinating paper, what it says, and perhaps the most intriguing question of all, why she called it a manifesto. Hi, and thank you very much for joining the DPP podcast. My name is Mark Harrison. I'm the CEO of the DPP, and I'm joined today, as I said in the intro, by Margaret Craig, the CEO of Signiant. Hi there, Margaret. Hi there. Thanks for inviting me. I always look forward to a stimulating conversation with you, Mark. <laughs> well, I'll try and live up to it, Margaret. <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, I've already told people about the fact that actually you, 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 you wrote this paper a little while ago, about a year ago, actually. Um, but, but why? Why was it that you decided during 2020 that you wanted to, to write down these thoughts? Well, the actual truth is that it was an effect of the pandemic because we all had a big change in our routines then. And as you know, I used to travel about half the time and suddenly found myself trapped in my house with a lot of anxiety. So one of the things I did was set aside an hour that I scheduled every day to organize a bunch of notes I had about these um, business changes related to SaaS. And as I dug into that, then I found that just a first person narrative was the best way for me to capture things. So again, it was not intended initially as anything to go anywhere, but rather just a method to organize my thoughts. So in a sense, it was almost like a bit of therapy for you at the time. <laughs> Absolutely. But nonetheless, uh, once you've finished it and given it a title, you called it a manifesto, which is a really interesting choice of word because Manifesto normally implies a policy or a set of aims or a position. And is that what you intend? That is kind of a pretentious word, isn't it? <laughs> but yes, I was. Um, I chose it intentionally, partly tongue in cheek, but also because it really is an opinion, a set of opinions and a set of positions. And then sort of a subtext there is I always think of the word manifesto as kind of having religious or political fervor. So something that you really have to be all in on. And I believe that at least from the vendor perspective, that's true of SaaS. I think when you decide to take a business in the SaaS direction, 
you pretty much have to be all in. That's a really interesting way of putting it. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll get into exactly what you mean by all in in, in our conversation now. Um, but before we do, uh, it's also very striking that you, you say at the beginning that this manifesto is essentially a deep dive into specific drivers of cost and efficiency. And, you know, it made me wonder whether, um, when it comes down to it, those two things for senior executives, both in the, uh, the end user and the vendor community are really the only two things that matter. It is, is that true or is that overstating it? I'm afraid it's actually true. As much of a, as all of us like to talk about innovation and doing cool things, those are only means to an end. And I think we can never lose sight of the fact that cost and efficiency are what makes the world go round. Right, right. Fascinating. Okay, well, let, let's get into the, the, the kind of detail of, of your manifesto. And y- you structure it in, in three chapters. Really, the first is is all about being cloud native. Um, the second is about the decision whether to build or buy, and in many ways, it's a section all about workflow, isn't it? And then, and then the the third section is about consumption based pricing and the relationships between vendors and their customers. So, we'll talk about each of those in turn. Um, the first, uh, <laughs> you actually start off the conversation about about the notion of being cloud native by by giving a warning to people about ever hearing anybody use that term or indeed other terms like SaaS. So why should we be cautious about the very language that actually you you yourself are about to use? Yeah, I think that's something that our industry does really get carried away sometimes with new and different buzzwords. And certainly the cloud is something that has really gone in this direction for our industry. I always remember when our um, CMO went to his first, John Feingold went to his first NAB, he came back and said, every company in this hall has the same words on their signs. Yeah. Do they literally all do the same thing? So I think some of these words just get used so much that they become meaningless. It's true, isn't it? There, there was a time when I used to wander around these shows um, and, uh, uh, and, and do a kind of tour in which I, I just looked at the language on the stands. I didn't look at any of the products. I just looked at the language because I knew that the language that I saw would, would tell me what it was that at that particular moment, vendors felt they should be projecting, whether they're actually achieving it or not is irrelevant. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but you, you actually very quickly then in, in your paper, you kind of distill this whole conversation into the difference between being single tenant and multi-tenant. In, in the way a solution is architected. Um, it's really interesting to me that, that you, you focus so hard on those notions. So, so why is that so important? I think it's because multi-tenant is really where the core benefits of SaaS are derived from. So without multi-tenant, you don't get those economies of scale. And it's very hard to get the resiliency and uptime. So in theory, you could build out a single tenant solution to be extremely robust. But practically speaking, you need to be able to spread those costs across a lot of customers to be able to make it really elastic and really resilient. 
But that then means, presumably, that uh, you know both the customer and the vendor will enjoy the the benefit of that um, in terms of, of how things are, are, are priced and, and and almost certainly in the the kind of efficiency of of the product. Um, but it, but it accepts the notion that 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 kind of everyone has to benefit for everyone to benefit. Absolutely. It starts you down that path of needing to have a virtuous circle where I benefit and then you benefit. And as with a lot of SaaS things, it's great once the flywheel is turning and you're operating at scale. It's just hard to get there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. So um, for you, in your journey at Signiant, you know, how did you get there? We had the benefit of starting with a business that had that was established with our customers of providing licensed on-premises software. So we had a revenue stream that let us largely self-capitalize the journey through. But we certainly went through the classic curve of when you do start down this path, your revenue goes down before it goes up. So one of the things that we needed was a set of investors who understood and believed in the benefit of going through this and were able to help us through that business of revenue going down before it starts to go back up again. So it certainly takes um, understanding and committed investors. And do you think that that is now more widely understood? That's to say that any set of investors would, would know that they need to help a company to, to go through that journey because it's so important to, to have that status ultimately. I think it is much more broadly understood, certainly within the media technology sector. When we started down the path in 2012, I think in the general purpose enterprise software world, it was really coming to the forefront. But now I think it's broadly understood, even in media tech. Right, right, right. Even in media tech, where everybody thinks they are so special and individual. <laughs> exactly. And, um, and uh, yeah, so on that note, let's talk a bit about um, about instrumentation, uh, as, as you call it. And some people might just simply refer to data, I guess. But but by that, you mean that, that ability to automatically to, to collect and aggregate and analyze data. Um, now, what's so interesting about what you say about that, if I'm understanding you correctly, is that instrumentation is is vitally important because it um, it enables both the vendor and the customer to kind of locate themselves within the ecosystem. They can they can they can now understand their pricing, their effectiveness, their efficiency within a wider context. Would that be a reasonable? Summary of why you think it's so important? Yep, I think that's a good way to look at it. And it means that because we operate in this media industry ecosystem, we can start to answer questions that our customers are interested in and we're interested in, such as how many IMF files are actually moving around the world? So people started to talk about IMF. Well, we can look at those files on an anonymized basis and answer that question. Over the course of the pandemic, it was really interesting to see how much more data month on month was flowing in and out of the cloud and which clouds it was moving in and out of. 
Something I'll mention that's been really interesting since we published this paper um, about the instrumentation side of things is green initiatives coming to the forefront. Ah. And with green initiatives, the whole notion of instrumentation becomes really important because you need chain of custody of those media assets. If you're going to assess the real carbon footprint of a media asset, you need to know how many copies of it, of it are stored, what kind of storage is it stored in, and then start to look around the ecosystem and see how many other companies are storing exactly that, that same data. So we've had some super interesting conversations about how a fully instrumented cloud native SaaS working across the whole industry can help enable these green initiatives. And I guess in so doing also to identify waste, where it is, how much of it there is, which is uh, a term that I've long thought has been slow to come to, to our industry. But you have this capability now to draw these comparisons across the ecosystem. However, do you find your customers in practice really want to know? Are they yet ready to be highly informed about themselves and about the ecosystem that they sit within? I think it varies. But one thing that pulls people in that direction is they intrinsically need the information about their own utilization because that drives their own economics. So of course, the same instrumentation is capturing how much of the various utilization parameters they're consuming and informs the size of their subscription and lets them figure out their unit costs and so forth. So I think it pulls it in that direction because that's how you bill with a SaaS system. And then they become very interested in their utilization on the Signia platform. Right. So you're kind of painting a picture of a, of a, a customer that um, progressively on this journey becomes better informed and in so doing also becomes more curious and I guess therefore a more informed user, which becomes better for everybody. But what happens at the, at the beginning, you know, with, a, with a, a customer that maybe is quite new to, um, to, to SaaS-based services, um, and to multi-tenanted solutions. Uh, how much obligation is there then on the vendor to actually do the educating? And how much is it actually simply the customer's problem that they haven't yet got the knowledge? Yeah, I think it's something that at the beginning, you really don't need to overthink it because the key for both parties is that the customer just start using the service. And some of these more um, subtle benefits like instrumentation don't really need to come into play because the service itself is filling a basic need, in our case, moving files. And so with large, sophisticated enterprise customers, sometimes you do have that instrumentation conversation up front. In other cases, you just say, here's a SaaS, it's easy to deploy, and it'll move your files. So it's a bit kind of Dr. Pepper, isn't it? I mean, like, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Just just give it a go. Exactly. Um, but but I guess even for you to be saying um, just give it a go, uh, it, it it does require the the customer to to really understand um, you know what which particular function or workflow they can just give a go. 
Um, and and how, how's that made simple for them to understand? Yeah, that becomes then a big part of our sales process is to make sure that our account executives are in there understanding what's going on in the customer's operation and saying, hey, here's a problem we could solve for you. Here's a place where you could drop in this product fairly readily and gain some efficiencies one way or another. Yeah. Another aspect of this that's interesting is the role of customer success. So the customer success function is really somewhat unique to SaaS because you're building this long-term relationship. And that's another place where we find a lot of these conversations happen are in the day-to-day touch points of our customer success people are monitoring utilization on an ongoing basis. And so they're often the ones who can reach out and say, oh, we noticed that your utilization has gone down. Did something change in your operation? Or conversely, they reach out and say, you've had a big spike in utilization. Can you tell us what's happening? Is it a project and you just want to pay some overages? Or are you growing these workflows and therefore might be advantageous for you to move to a different subscription tier? So that customer success role is a really important part of this. So that also changes the role of sales, certainly away from the historical model of it, or or rather perhaps I should be saying um, for... uh, the incentivization that a salesperson has and the way that they're remunerated, it's got to be different, hasn't it, in this model? It's very different because the whole thing is focused on playing a long game for both parties. So conventional sales of hardware or licensed software, uh, basically you wanted to sell as much as possible at that moment in time, kind of throw it over the wall, and it becomes the customer's challenge whether to deploy it or not. In this case, we don't want to oversell. We want to sell a right size subscription. We want it to get in there and start adding value. So we don't want to do big science projects and giant initiatives most of the time. We just want to plant a seed. Right, right. I want to come back to that later on, actually, when we start talking a bit about about pricing, that obligation that the vendor has to, uh, to, to, to prove they deliver the value that they're, they're promising they're going to deliver. But, but we've kind of now moved into the second chapter of your paper, which is all about, about build or buy, um, which I found completely fascinating. And, and you know, you're very careful in that subject to, to say that it's a kind of continuum, actually, um, the build or buy thing. It, it depends what it is that you are trying to achieve about what the, the size and shape might be of any particular building blocks that a customer wants to to bring into their into their business. Um, but I must say that even then, I sort of have difficulty with the notion of of a tech building block. Um, I mean, is it is it ever really that simple that you can, as a customer, you can, or indeed as a vendor, you can choose, oh, I'm going to have this size or that size doing this or that, and I'm going to drop them in or out. And I just wonder whether that the simplicity of that notion in the way that we articulate it is itself becoming a bit of a problem. Well, you're quite right, Mark. I think we do overstate it because the the truth is it isn't Legos that you literally snap together. But I think the key point is that it's much simpler than it used to be. 
So the way that we build things now and the way that modern APIs are defined make it much easier to say, I'm going to change this workflow and replace one piece of it. Whereas things used to just be more deeply intertwined. Right, but if you're now a customer who has has done the stitching together, so you have provided the glue, um, have you built or have you bought? That's where the, the continuum comes in because every operation has to do, you have to do a little bit of building, but you always have. Just as you used to have technicians and engineers who would hook things together physically, now you need to have software people who um, connect things via API, who write scripts, who pull together the software pieces. So there's always going to be a little bit of build because you have to customize for what you're trying to achieve. And I think the question is just where do you draw the line? And to think of it through the lens of what can I buy off the shelf? And if I can buy it off the shelf, then how do I convince myself that, no, 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 I really need to start and build it, stick build it from the ground up rather than using that off-the-shelf offering. So if you were to be a bit, I don't know, manifesto-like about this, what what would you say customers should be doing or should take care to do? I think a lot of it comes down to being vigilant about that notion of, can I buy it off the shelf? And it isn't just for cost management. It's also for... Um, resiliency. So I told in the manifesto, told the story of how Media Shuttle is very often used as a cloud ingest portal. One of the things that I didn't really say in there directly is that one of the things that pulled back a lot of customers from single tenant cloud ingest portals that they had built themselves or commissioned was when there was a big Amazon outage. And what happened then was any of these that were based in Amazon East were out of operation for a significant period of time. Whereas our solution, we had invested in making it robust enough that we didn't experience any downtime during that. Mm. So we were able to move the services to um, the other side of the country. We were managing it, able to make it work. So I think it's those kinds of things that executives really need to keep in mind if the engineers come and say, oh, we can build this, we can build this and it'll be exactly what the operational people want, then it's incumbent on the higher level people in the organization sometimes to say, okay, we acknowledge you can build anything. Anybody can build anything, but does that make the most sense for our business? Not only from a cost perspective, but also in terms of our ability to actually fulfill the things that we need to do. Really interesting. That reminds me actually of of the security conversation in a way where, um, you know, sometimes people say, just think about where you want to put that line with security, because you could be absolutely certain that global providers have got infinitely more security capability than 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 we might have as a company. Um, but in order to get the benefit of that, you might have to move the line of where security becomes uh, somebody else's job rather than our job. And that's like a, that's a psychological battle for a lot of companies to, 
to address, isn't it? And maybe something a bit similar here is that accepting where you can move the line to, you know, where's the place you can now let go? I think that's a really good analogy. And in a similar way, it's something that you have to really pull way up and look at with some distance and especially let go of some of the emotional things that might drive you either on security or on building your own. Right, right. Um, and, and this is all getting us towards um, uh, the notion of simplicity that I think you're, you're very you're very good on in this in this paper. And and I did find some of this material the most interesting of all, actually. Where again, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're kind of inviting uh, customers to consider whether actually if they if they stopped being so fixated on modernizing each individual workflow they have and actually just thought a bit more about the outcome they're trying to achieve, they might be able to miss some stages out, which is your the, the, the don't bother part of your build by or don't bother. Um, maybe if you stand still, you'll avoid going down a rabbit hole. Um, and maybe actually you'll find that a, a simpler solution has come along that enables you to skip a few stages of, of kind of workflow evolution. Have I understood you correctly? Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's a good point. And we did see that happen some with cloud adoption, that the early adopters had to do a bunch of things that you just don't need to do anymore. Right. So that is one of the tough decision points that media executives make is, do you chase the latest technology or do you just hang back a bit and see how it works out for others? Right. And in your experience, are senior executives now sufficiently informed that they can start to, I guess, not just make those judgments themselves, but actually maybe be challenging their own internal tech teams around these subjects? Definitely. People throughout the industry at every level are quite well informed now. I do still, though, see fairly large disconnects sometimes between what the executives at the highest levels believe is going on in their organization and what's actually going on. And I think that's not unusual. I'm sure that's true in my own company, that some of what I believe goes on isn't actually what's happening. But particularly in an environment of very fast moving technology, I think that's one of the challenges for senior people is that um, what their high level objectives in terms of cost efficiency delivery in this cross-platform world, it can be hard for the people on the ground who are also keeping linear television on the air, doing all of those other kinds of things. It can be hard for those two things to meet in the middle. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that. And, and you know, it, it makes me wonder whether part of our problem here is actually the very word workflow. But what I mean is that that kind of everything for us is workflow. And, and when we use that notion, it, 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 I think in, in the media industry, it always has that sort of connotation of having a bit of creativity about it as well. And we don't, it seems to me, particularly use the language of manufacturing. Um, we, don't, we don't sound very process driven when we talk about how we actually make and manage and distribute content. And I don't know whether other industries use this term workflow in the same way as us. Do you know? I don't know either, but I do agree with you that workflow has become so overused that it almost means nothing. Right. 
And I think we have to be cautious about that. And are we really talking about automated processes or are we talking about the interaction between people and processes? And the generic word, again, really doesn't mean much of anything these days. Yeah, yeah. Is it actually a workflow? Or is it just describing a person's job, which is entirely different? <laughs> and some of the process intensive things from areas like manufacturing are really starting to come into play in the industry. I hear more and more people talking about that. Although we also have the risk of supply chain and content supply chain nomenclature becoming just the new workflow. But at least I think it's moving in the right direction in terms of process thinking. Right, right. Yeah. And that's a good note. That's another whole the whole podcast in its own right. Um, let's go to the to the, the third and final part of of your paper. And uh, it contains actually probably my favorite couple of lines from what you wrote, which are these. Uh, Remember that everything is sold in economically rational units. You can't go to the grocery store and buy five frozen peas. You have to purchase the entire bag, which I just thought was a, a brilliantly simple analogy. It's got a kind of Forrest Gump quality about it in a really good way. Um, and what you're really doing there in the papers, you're talking about the way that products and services are priced and you're effectively debunking pay-as-you-go as being a bit of a myth, aren't you? I think it really depends on the nature of the specific service. So I would never deny that pay-as-you-go makes sense for infrastructure as a service or platform as a service things from the cloud providers where they're trying to allow developers to just try something out. So pay as you go can be a really good way to try things and get started. But that doesn't mean that every company for every kind of service needs to offer it all the time. And certainly for the nature of the software that Signant provides, we're a lot closer to an enterprise software model, which is annual subscriptions. So for our class of technology, I definitely don't think that pay-as-you-go makes sense. Okay, okay. So, yeah, you're saying that actually, if it's if it's a, it's almost more a try before you buy. That that's kind of the model where pay-as-you-go has some kind of meaning. Would that be it? Yes, I think in cases where you want to use a little bit, and there also are probably kinds of technologies that can be much more spiky than ours is. So that can make sense, but for both the vendor and the customer, the notion of predictability is just super important. So that's where most of our customers come back to anyway, is they need to know what their costs are going to be for the coming fiscal year. And they also know that they want their supplier to be able to hire support people to provision the systems. They, it, they know that it's beneficial for us to also have that predictability. Right, right. So through subscription, because you can, have, you can have a number of subscription models and you can move from one tier to another. And just as we're all familiar with in the in the consumer realm, um, you get some degree of predictability, but you also get some degree of flexibility. That's right. And the way you describe that, it, it makes it sound quite simple. But then you also note that, in fact, within Signet, it's taken a lot of work to get to the uh, the subscription um, uh, pricing that you have and that you have to go on working on it the whole time. So why is it, why is it permanently so complex underneath? 
I think it really is less about complexity and more about shifting the thinking of everybody inside Signiant and of our customers to this notion of a long-term relationship. So my view is that a lot of really complex pricing uh, models don't make a lot of sense because what you in a SaaS environment, you're not trying to squeeze every penny out of that customer at the moment in time. So you don't need to model it in great detail. You're playing a long game. So you need to be saying, how can I make sure that I am delivering value to this customer in a way that they perceive and understand that value and will want to commit to us in the long term? So the pricing things, in my view, are kind of less mathematical and more philosophical. Okay, okay. So now I think I understand, in fact, what you've meant when you said in in the paper, it doesn't belong on the shoulders of the supplier community to get involved in accounting details. You're, you're saying that if both parties get sucked into too much of the maths, they're almost certainly missing out on what really matters, which is the relationship. Right. And there are certain things like whether to capitalize a subscription that has nothing to do with us. The CFO of the buyer can decide whether or not they want to capitalize software. But I don't think that it's understood to be the responsibility of suppliers anymore to offer a range of pricing models. I think it's more understood now on the procurement side of our customers that we need to offer pricing models that make sense for our business and convince them that make sense for them, but not just offer a cafeteria of different pricing models. Right, 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 right. Which is, again, all part of... Um the customer understanding that they might actually benefit from seeing themselves as a bit less special and distinct. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, are you finding that at the executive level, that it's getting more important to form relationships with CFOs as well as CTOs, that actually if, if they if they get a penny drop moment on all this, then, then life become, can become much simpler? We aren't actually seeing a strong pull in that direction. And again, maybe that's because of the scale of Signiant. So I think a CFO of a large scale media company has other things to worry about than a supplier like us that they might buy a few million dollars a year from. So we aren't seeing direct relationships with the CFOs typically, but certainly are having a lot of economic conversations with the technical and operational executives who of course have a lot of financial responsibility themselves right 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 that's interesting development um so we're talking there a lot about about the customer and the way that they need to think about the relationship but you are also quite forceful in this manifesto about the obligations on um on on the vendors as we alluded to earlier on that uh, you sort of think that any supplier has got to be brave, I guess, don't you? You, you feel you've, you've got to be prepared to bet upon the quality of what you're offering and believe that if it's as good as you claim, that the business will follow. I think that's absolutely true. And part of the reason there is that it sets a foundation of trust. And any long-term relationship has to be based on trust. 
So you can't trick the customer into buying the product or committing to it. You really have to go in believing that I can deliver value. And if I don't, it's your prerogative to walk away. And I think that mindset is really healthy and really essential to these kinds of technologies. And so rather as we talked earlier on about, um, you know, whether this notion of swapping out parts of the tech stack is a bit misleading. Don't you think that this language of swapping out um, suppliers is also quite unhelpful because it, it kind of suggests that if as a customer, you can find something cheaper elsewhere, you just got to get rid of this previous incumbent. But I think what you're saying is that if that is how you're running your business, um, you're probably going to be in a worse place in the longer term because you won't have any relationships of trust going on. That's my belief. And I think that when you have the kind of interdependency that you have with technology now, remember, we're running pieces of their technical infrastructure. So to build those long-term relationships based on trust, I think it's prudent for media companies to choose to have strategic relationships with a number of their suppliers. Now, maybe there's classes of technology that you don't need to worry about that with because it's truly fungible, it's truly commoditized. But I think it's smart for media executives to think very carefully about whether a few strategic relationships would serve them better than really continuing to pound on the notion of um, swapping out. And in fact, I find that's what's going on. I think the swapping out thing is kind of um, a little bit of saber rattling mm -hmm. that doesn't hurt to say, hey, you guys need to stay on your toes. But once it's clear that everybody is paying attention and is committed to um, outcomes that serve both parties, I think it kind of fades away. Right. So in, in many respects, the days of hardware and proprietary solutions and lots of steak dinners just sort of gave the notion of long-term relationships a bad name. Um, and now we've lost the proprietary solutions and we've lost the hardware and, and in many cases lost the steak dinners. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Doesn't mean we should still be losing the long-term relationships. Right. And again, in a lots of ways, those long-term relationships are more fundamental to the media business because we are deeply embedded in what's going on there. Right, right. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Margaret, thanks so much. That has been such an interesting uh, conversation about what I think is an absolutely brilliant, brilliant paper. Um, but let me just try and end by summarising it really crudely. And you tell me whether this is just too crude for words. If I had to write about your paper as, as uh, a tabloid story, I think I would say it came in three parts. And the first one says that architecting for everyone ultimately benefits everyone. Secondly, that you have to know enough to understand simplicity. And thirdly, that it takes two to make a really good vendor-customer marriage. Is that a fair, if crude, summary? I think you've hit the nail on the head, Mark. That's exactly right. Okay, well, in that case, we'll get that printed up. It'll be on every newsstand in the morning for the whole world to read. Or alternatively, uh, people can go to the link in the show notes for this podcast um, and read the paper for themselves. As I said, I, I just found it a fascinating read. I've, I've read it more than once now, and it really does stand being read more than once. 
it's only 20 pages long. It's not as long as Margaret claimed in her original email. It's beautifully well written. So it's a very, very um, easy read from that point of view uh, and also massively stimulating. But look, thanks so much, Margaret. It's been great to talk to you. And, uh, and thanks also to Signium for their support for the Leaders Briefing. We look forward to working with you again on that this year. Thanks for having me, Mark. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.